Happy Easter. So what do you do with Easter? You know, by many people, this is claimed to be the high day of the year, Easter Sunday. And I wouldn't argue against that. And I think it begs the question that we seek answers for, which is, why do we consider it such? And maybe the fallback question for me always on these kind of questions, like what do you do with Easter, is okay, so it's a high holy day, so what? I know that's a little different to hear a preacher come up on a high holy day and start challenging or thinking a bit about it, but I think that we are in a time where we really need to take a fresh look at Easter. So I'm going to ask you to do something a little bit weird today. It's not super weird, but it's weird enough that I feel like I need to explain what I'm asking you to do. This, this actually is one of the ways that I prefer to do Bible study in, in a narrative, a story kind of a way, and that is to inject myself into the story. But I know that that's harder to do than what it sounds like it should be. So let me just take you back in my own life. In my senior year in high school, I was pursued by the guy who was the drama teacher for our high school. I was not a drama guy. Some of you who know me have that, you might not believe that. No, you're all kinds of drama. I I hope not, but um, I I was not a drama guy in high school. Matter of fact, I didn't even know that we really had a drama group, and uh, I was more into sports and some other things that I was doing, and Uh, But this guy, about January or so of my senior year, started really pressuring me to come and be in the one-act play, which is a UIL competition, district level, and then beyond, all the way to a state meet. And uh, he wanted me to come and be part of it, and especially he wanted me to come and play a drill sergeant in the Army. I'm a natural (laughs) for that role. Actually, not so. And, and I, you know, he's telling me this. And he's trying to sell me on the idea by telling me that's what I would be doing. He said, it's a great, it's a great part. You, you get to be the, the drill sergeant. You get to tell people what to do. I, I asked him, do I get to hit people? He said, no, you can't hit anybody. I don't want to do it. And so he started putting pressure on me through some other teachers of mine. And so finally I decided that I would do that. And, and so I stepped into the role. And it was, it was the furthest thing from my personality to be a drill sergeant. Yelling at people, I know you don't believe that now, but yelling at people and all those kind of things, and it just was not me in high school. Well, he had done the same thing with some other guys. For this one-act play competition, uh, he pulled a lot of non-drama people into it. And so these other guys played the soldiers that were part of my job as a drill sergeant to take them through basic training, and it just wasn't clicking for him. And so finally he decided, and remember we lived in Odessa, And so he finally decided that the thing he wanted to do was to take us and take us to El Paso, Texas, where Fort Bliss is, which is, at least at the time, was one of the places that the Army did basic training. And we spent two or three days out there, three days, but two days at Fort Bliss, uh, spent the night there in the officer's quarters and all, all that kind of stuff. And he assigned me to this drill sergeant. And I decided right then, four hours into the whole thing, I decided I would never join the military because of this drill sergeant. But my teacher kept telling me, you need, here's a key truth for us, you need to assume the identity of that person. When it comes to play that part on the stage, you need to be that guy on stage. So as you're learning from him, assume that identity. 
So I want to take that and I want to push it off to you this morning and I want to invite you to assume the identity of a first century follower of Jesus. Now this is hard for us to do and I'm going to try to help as we walk through this. It's a little bit different kind of a sermon, but um, it's hard for us to do because we're 21st century followers of Jesus. And we have all kinds of trappings and all kinds of folk religion and all kinds of traditions that we kind of lump around days like Easter. And so we, we filter the day through those things. So in an attempt to help us all rethink Easter today, what I want to do is invite you to assume the identity of a first century follower of Jesus Christ. That pushes us into John chapter 19 and chapter 20, and we're going to come back as we have been working through John's gospel now for a while, looking at the works and the words of Jesus. Uh, And and so we're going to start there, but actually I want to push it back even a little further. You know, it all started with great promise, this life of Jesus Christ. We could go way back in the Old Testament, but I'll just start at the beginning of the New Testament and go to some of those pre-birth uh, pieces of the story of the, of the Christmas that we celebrate. Those, those pieces of story that gave great promise and great hope to the people who were there as these angels showed up to regular, ordinary people. And made these announcements. And and then this virgin gave birth to a child. A miraculous thing in and of itself. And angels showed up out to talk to the shepherds out in the field. It, it 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 started off in grand fashion. It moved from that and the the birth of hope for a group of people who were desperately looking for a Messiah. And they hear the words of these angels and and all of a sudden they go, the Messiah, this is incredible. Yes, we vote for that. And then Jesus drops off the scene for a while. And the next time he surfaces in the gospel narratives for us, he's now probably 12 years old or so. And his family goes to one of the great feasts to the city of Jerusalem and they begin their trek home and they find that Jesus is nowhere to be found. And so this little miraculous birth kid who's grown to be almost a teenager is nowhere to be found until they do find him sitting with the key leaders and the teachers at the synagogue or at the temple and he's confounding them with his insights. (laughs) What a great start. For a great story, that's a great start. Miraculous birth, a young guy who confounds the smart guys at the temple. And then we step into John's gospel because then there's a wedding. And it's a couple of decades later by now, and this same little Jesus has now grown up to be an adult. And he shows up at a wedding, and it's one of those watershed, excuse me, wine shed moments. Because he turns the water into wine. And the first of the signs that John is going to lay out for us, these seven different signs that point to the divinity of Jesus Christ, that first one is when he shows up and does something as impossible as turning water to wine. There have been flashes of brilliance, but this is different. This is not a smart kid talking to a bunch of adults. This is now somebody doing something that nobody else has ever done before. And so John begins to walk us through the life of Jesus and these signs, the works that Jesus did. Goes from water to wine to being healing of 
a child doing that healing from a distance to healing a man who was lame who, and then the feeding of 5,000 people with just a little lunch, which is followed by walking on the water. This is heady stuff. We, we hear this stuff and we're so ingrained in the gospel story that we talk about these miracles that Jesus did just as a matter of course. This is incredible stuff. And as a first century follower of Jesus, as you walk along with him through the Judean countryside and up through Galilee along uh, the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and then even on top of the water of the Sea of Galilee, you see this Jesus do incredible things. And it starts taking root, this hope. This expectation, this wishful thinking that maybe this guy really is who we heard he was. Maybe those stories about angels at his birth are real. Maybe this is the guy who's going to move us out from under the boot of Rome. Oh, this is heady stuff. Feeding 5,000 people with just a lunch, walking on the water, healing a blind man, and then the unthinkable. If you could, if you could swallow all the other stuff, this one is the one that blows people's minds in first century Jerusalem. Jesus shows up late. By the way, don't, don't, uh, don't panic too much when it looks like Jesus isn't around. He doesn't work on your timetable. He works on his. And his is always right. But, but see, that's hard for us. It was hard for the sisters of this guy named Lazarus. I mean, after all, Jesus healed a guy's daughter from a distance just by speaking the words. They asked him to come be with Lazarus and heal him, and he didn't even bother to show up. And Jesus walks up to the side of that tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come out. <laughs> and here he comes. He's been dead for days. And he comes waddling out. You know he had to be waddling. He's wrapped up in grave clothes. Smelly and alive. Oh, there's hope there. There, there, there's a guy. There's a guy who knows how to draw a crowd. And on top of all of those miracles, those signs that he does, Jesus uh, is shown by, to us by John in this twin track. On one track, he's doing these miracles to show that he's God. But on the other track, Jesus now is beginning to say some things that cause some real trouble for people. He starts making claims verbally that underscore the claims that his signs do. He starts saying, I am, and uses Old Testament language, uses covenant language, uses uh, Moses on the Mount Sinai language where God says, I am who I am. And Jesus takes those words right out of Exodus and thrusts them into first century Christian, well, we wouldn't say Christian yet, we would just say followers, and he starts throwing those things out, and the religious crowd goes nuts. That's blasphemy. You can't say that. But John, in incredible writing, interweaves these statements of I am the bread of life with walking on water, and I am the light of the world with feeding people and, and healing people. And in this twin track, as we march through Jesus' life in the first century, we see his works and we hear his words, and it pushes us into this crisis of belief. Who is this guy? 
But with those words comes this escalation of tension. And as a first century follower of Jesus, you get this. Because as you're watching him do the things that he does, you're also hearing the murmuring on the edge of the crowd. And finally on the edge moves up into the front of face of Jesus. And these religious leaders start now challenging him. The Romans and those soldiers, the occupying force, are always there. And there are these messianic hopes. As a good Jew, you would have known those promises from many centuries before that said there is coming a one who will deliver you. Well, they needed deliverance. They were being ruled by a group of people that were some of the hardest rulers of time. Jesus, in this first century, infuses hope into the situation. There is this move that says he's the guy. You know, we can relate to the disciples in our modern day. At some level, we can, we can kind of get that. We're not under Roman occupation or anything like that. But we all love to have hope. I, let me just take you back almost 10 years now. In the presidential election of 2008, there was this young upstart politician, tall skinny guy from Chicago, who trafficked in hope. And his whole campaign was driven by this one little phrase, hope and change. And that little message that said there is hope, there can be change. That little message so hit the heart of people who were not part of the political process that they pushed him into the presidency. Hope and change. We love the idea of having hope. Especially when things aren't going the way we want them to go. We love the idea of hope. And so let's flash forward eight years and that guy now is coming out of the White House. Somebody else is going to have to take it. And lo and behold, another guy comes up trafficking in hope and he says, let's make America great again. We love hope. (laughs) But this situation for these Jewish people in the first century is one that is deeper than that. They're waiting for Messiah. They're waiting for the guy who has been promised by God for centuries to come in and put them back into the driver's seat where they will be the king of the hill in the world. It's a hopeful time. It's a great opportunity. Hope abounds in all of this. And at that point, we come into this last thing that Jesus does Well, it's not the last thing that he does, but it's the last thing where hope is front and center. And so he comes riding into town on a donkey. And people are doing palm fronds in front of him. We call that Palm Sunday. And it's when all of the crowds gave way finally to hope. He's our guy. He's our guy. We need to understand the depth of what happened. Why we have Easter In the first place, we need to rethink the whole thing, which pushes us then suddenly to this moment, this traitor's kiss in a garden in the middle of the night that took hope and threw it against the rocks. All of the stuff, the startup for Jesus was incredible, and it all just filtered away in a few hours. Those disciples, you as a first 
century disciple who had followed Jesus around and watched what he did and heard what he said and nudged each other when he took on the religious leaders of his day and won, all of a sudden now hope turns to hopeless for you. That's not unusual for us. We see that happen in our lives on a regular basis. A simple morning getting ready for work and a lump is discovered that sets in motion a medical process that steals hope from us. A phone call from a kid who you raised yourself, who went off into the world one simple phone call takes hope away and it becomes a hopeless situation. Hopelessness is the order of the day for many of us. You get to work, you get called into the boss's office and what was a promising career is suddenly sidelined and hope is gone. For these disciples, the arrest in the garden gave way to the unthinkable. This Messiah, this one that you've been pinning your hopes on, you've pinned your hopes on him so much that you've left family and career and all of those things behind to follow him through the countryside and be one of his very closest set of people. And in those few short hours, hope is gone because the cross now becomes front and center. Uh, this is a problem for us, and we need to rethink the cross, I think, in our time. I don't want to show of hands or anything like that, but I'm going to suggest that... It, okay, so I'm, the quickest way to set records for attendance is let me estimate the crowd, okay? So 4,000 people here today, roughly. <laughs> I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an educated guess, and I'm going to guess that at least one person in here today has a necklace on that has a cross on it or a ring or maybe it's on your Bible cover or something like that. After all, we have one that we use as decoration in the sanctuary. Well, it's not a sanctuary. It's a worship center. It's, it's, not, it's a building. This is a building. But we try to dress it up like a church and we put a cross here. Why do we do that? We need to rethink the cross just a little bit on this Easter Sunday. Because in first century Greco-Roman life, the cross, the last place you would expect to see one would have been in a place of worship. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion. It was in place before they took over. But they certainly perfected it. And I'm not going to get into all of the dirty, gross, grueling pieces of what the crucifixion looked like. But you should go... And research that a little bit. I'll say just a couple of statements here to help you get the point here. The cross was the cruelest form of capital punishment that the Romans could ever put out. It was one of those things that was reserved for the worst of the worst. As far as Rome was concerned, the crucifixion event was reserved for traitors or rebels and for runaway slaves, both of which the Romans knew that if they got away, then it would undermine the whole empire. And so they used crucifixion as one of those public symbols for people who were going against the Roman government. In a Jewish 
revolution that occurred against Rome at one point. It is said, and historical evidence supports, that the Roman general at that particular place lined up over 100 miles, over 2,000 crosses of Jews who were part of the, of the rebellion and crucified them along the, the walkway, the highway, if you will, so that everybody walking that way could see what happened to those people who went against Rome. N.T. Wright says this, Crucifixion was one of the central ways in which the authorities in the ancient world would set out quite literally to show subject people who was in charge and to break the spirit of any resistance. This is no small thing, this crucifixion. Wright goes on to say not only was crucifixion killing by slow torture, And not only was it shaming, and nor was it only issuing a warning to people, it certainly was all of those. But it was also a parody of the rebel. In other words, it was a way to make fun of that person who had the audacity to believe that they could rise up against the Roman authorities. And so the crucifixion often had on the top of the cross some kind of a title, a placard that was put there that said something about the claims of that person, which is why we read in Scripture that they wrote on a placard and put it on Jesus' cross, the King of the Jews. That's not an, uh, an, uh, a compliment to Jesus. We read other things into it, obviously, But for the Romans and for the Jews who did that, that was taunting him and his followers. So let me put you back into the moment. You are one of those first century followers and you have invested yourself in this Jesus for three years and you followed him and hope springs eternal, as we say. And then just like that in the garden and then on a cross, hope gives way to hopelessness. And on that Roman cross... There was a social message sent by Rome to the followers of Jesus. We, Rome, are superior. You are inferior. There was a political message that said we are in charge and you can do nothing about it. There was also that implied theological uh, charge that goes essentially this. The goddess Rome, Roma, and the god who is Caesar, those both with small g's, just in case you're keeping score at home. The goddess Roma, And the God who is Caesar are stronger and superior to your gods. You got to wear that as a first century follower of Jesus. Because in that moment, this one whose birth the angels trumpeted. This one whose birth God himself sent angels to announce to individuals. This one who himself claimed to be the very son of God, hangs on a cross and hope dies. Everyone witnessing that event, the death of this sign worker, would have known that the message sent by Rome was he finally met his match. What started out so well and held such great promise, dead, hanging on a cross. You know, the loss of hope is a powerful thing. 
when we lose hope in life, it gives way. I mean, like that, it gives way to fear. Where we build our house expecting God to do something and then suddenly hope is gone. Then fear sets in. What do we do now? We find that all through this passage. I know you're wondering if I'm ever going to read any scripture, so let's get into some of that now. But we find that in these disciples. We, We know that when Jesus was arrested in the garden, when Judas Iscariot came up and with that that covert signal of a kiss on the cheek, it was the evidence that those people with him needed to arrest Jesus. And we know that at that moment, according to Scripture, the disciples dispersed. They were gone. You know why? Because they were afraid. Hopelessness invokes incredible fear in us. It's the fear of the unknown, what's going to happen. And our mind starts running away with us. And so we go to another one of those disciples, Simon Peter, who at least has the backbone and the moxie to follow Jesus at a distance. But they take Jesus from that garden to this trial, a series of trials that he's going to go through. And here's Simon Peter out in the courtyard. And it must have been a cold night because he's warming himself by the fire. And all of a sudden, he's given the opportunity to trumpet out, I am his number one follower. But hopelessness wins. And Simon Peter ducks his head and claims not to know who Jesus is. How how do you go from being willing to die for Jesus a few days before to all of a sudden denying that you even knew him, this one that you gave up everything to follow? And the answer is hope died when Jesus got arrested. You know, so intense was this fear and those disciples that there are no-shows after the fact of the crucifixion. Look at chapter 20, John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. Time out. Full stop. Let's think about this. Why her? I'm not really so much concerned about why her. Let me add another piece of the Why only her? Why is it that she's the only one? Now, we have another uh, gospel record that shows that there was another lady with her. Um, why only them? Where are these hotshot guys of Jesus who just not long before that had begun, you know, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, by the way, that's hope. When you come into your kingdom, make sure that I'm sitting at your right hand. Okay, nobody ever, from those disciples, nobody ever said, let me be the one who cleans the bathrooms when you get there. None of them wanted that. Their hope was bigger than that. They wanted to be hotshot rulers like the most of us do. Why is it that after that horrible death on a cross that that seemed to indicate that Rome was bigger than Jesus was. Why did the disciples not show up and only this lady? Well, we have a pretty good answer to that. If you look down further in chapter 20, look at verse 19 where it says this, and I know I'm skipping a lot in there. I'll get back to that in a minute. But in verse 19, it says this, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Hopelessness breeds fear, and fear paralyzes. For us in our day, hopelessness looks overwhelming. 
when hopelessness steps into our lives, it just paralyzes us. You know what I'm talking about, those loved ones who receive medical diagnoses that you know that today is the, only, is the best you will ever see them again because every day after this, medicine fails. You know what I'm talking about. You know, one of the great problems in American society today is sex trafficking. We hide in our churches and we act like that's not that big a deal. Think about those young girls and boys who get kidnapped and held against their own will. There's hopelessness. Nobody knows who I am. Nobody knows where I am. Nobody cares. What does Easter matter to them? Hopelessness is tough. And we're all just always a moment away from hopelessness. There's always that opportunity just around the next corner for us to just give up hope. It's very possible on a day like this, just like any other Sunday in any other church that we come in here, and there are people who have come in here today, and maybe you're one of those and you have no hope that your life is ever going to be what you want it to be. What do you do with that? And we can say he is risen. He is risen indeed all day long. But it's got to matter. And in this moment, hope is gone for these people. We need to get that. And I wanted to put you into first century life as you're a follower of Jesus to fully feel the moment where Jesus is just gone. All of a sudden, all of the hope has gone. For all of the tough talk from Jesus, the cross silenced hope. But wait. While the cross is part of God's plan, it's not ever intended to be the final part of God's plan. And there is a flicker of hope now that we find in John chapter 20. And as we move towards the end of this, please don't miss this. The end of this story is not that Jesus is hung on a cross and then thrown into a tomb and that's the end of it all. That's bad. That's horrible. But somehow God could take that and make something incredible out of it. After all, Jesus has been trafficking in the incredible all of his life. Why would we expect anything different now? Is it possible just maybe that of these seven signs that Jesus has already done, maybe he saved the best for last? So in John chapter 20, verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and she wept. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She's there to find a dead body. Don't miss that. Verse 12, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Hold on, hold on. Are you serious with that question? Why am I weeping? I put everything about my life into this guy. He was my hope. I thought he was the Messiah. What do you mean, why am I weeping? He just got strung up on a cross. That's a good thing about God. He always makes us come to grips with our own messed up thinking. 
Why are you weeping? Verse 13, she said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Don't miss the fact that she's still stuck in hopelessness, but there's this flicker of hope because now she's talking to angels. She doesn't know it yet. She's talking to people that God sent to make sure that hope gets infused back into her life. And suddenly, the one who said, I am the light of the world, bursts into the darkness. And he is risen. Chapter 20, verse 14 through 16. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where have you laid him and I will take him away. And in one word, Jesus drops hope right back on the center stage. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. I can only imagine the inflection of Jesus' word when he said that. But here's the deal. When you've heard Jesus call your name before, you never miss it when he calls it again. Hope. From the darkness of hopelessness. Hope. She turned and she said to him, in Aramaic, wow! Okay, that's not what it says, okay? It's not what it says, but it's sort of what it says. This is a response of recognition. This is a response of going back. This is a response where the hopelessness of the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus is just gone because nobody claims his people like Jesus does. In fact, he saved the best for last. So here, let, let, it pushes me right back, and we're finished. Let me ask our musicians to come on up. But don't miss this last couple of minutes of the sermon. I started off by saying, what do you do with Easter? And what I've tried to do today is I've tried to push you into ownership of just how dark those moments were. Because it's when we recognize how dark the moments were that we appreciate how light Jesus is now. You can't appreciate the resurrection of Jesus just because it comes around on a calendar when we celebrate it. You only appreciate the resurrection of Jesus when he snatches you out of hopelessness. And Scripture tells us that Jesus comes to provide us the opportunity to have life. John says in his gospel, it's the kind of life that just blows your mind. Do you have that? You have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the risen Christ? Oh, crucified to be sure. And one of the reasons that we emphasize resurrection more than crucifixion is because the crucifixion scares us a little bit. Resurrection is a great opportunity for us to just come along and say, let's all shout and sing, praise the Lord, he is risen indeed. But you have no resurrection without the cross. 
And you've got to live through the cross in your own life in order to get to the resurrection in your own life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The depth of your hopelessness is that without Jesus doing what he did, you don't have a chance at life. So what do you do with Easter? Just to finish it off, <laughs> Philippians chapter 2, Paul gives us incredible commentary on what I've just said. Paul says it much better than I do and a lot shorter than I say it. But it's important what he says. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. There's that humiliation factor. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The question that I have for you today is, what do you do with Easter? And I would say, Paul says, come to this point where you bow your knee to the risen Christ and let him give you hope. But now hope's not wishful thinking. Now hope is assurance based on the promises of God. Do you have that hope today? Are you stuck in the dark? Or is the light of the world resurrected in your life? Let's pray. And as we pray... I'm going to invite you to personalize all that was just said. Do you know him? If you don't, do you want to? Because I'm pretty sure that we have several of us here would love to introduce you to him and the life that he gives. Father, use this time to change lives for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.